Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 219 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Lunar Landing. This is Apollo Control, 93 hours, 29 minutes, ground elapsed time. Some five minutes away from loss of signal with Apollo 11 on this revolution. A wake-up call is expected from spacecraft communicator Ron Evans here in Mission Control. Just prior to the time the spacecraft goes under the goes over the hill on the lunar's far side, well, presently Apollo 11 is in a orbit measuring 64 nautical miles at Apocynthian, 55.5 nautical miles at Parasynthian. Apollo 11, Apollo 11. Good morning from the Black Team. Collins was sleeping so soundly, it took 20 seconds for him to fumble with the microphone and answer. Good morning, Houston. Ah, good morning. Uh, we got about two minutes to uh, LOS here, uh, Mike. Good morning, Ron. You guys wake up early. <laughs> yeah, you're about two minutes early here on the wake up. Looks like you're really uh, sawing them away. You're right. Houston could tell when the crew was in a deep sleep by monitoring their heart rate, which usually dipped down to 40 beats per minute or so when they were in deep sleep. Collins thought he had been asleep only five hours or so. He had had a tough time getting to sleep, and now he was having trouble waking up. The astronauts began their day by fixing breakfast and getting various items of equipment ready for transfer into the lunar module. Then, it was time for Neil and Buzz to suit up. They began by pulling their lunar underwear out of the storage bins. These garments were liquid-cooled with hundreds of thin, flexible plastic tubes sewn into a fishnet fabric. The lunar surface backpacks pumped water through the tubes, cooling their bodies much more efficiently than could be done simply by blowing cool oxygen over them. Of course, Mike Collins did not need a water-cooled underwear 
because he didn't have any backpack and because, hopefully, he wouldn't be working that hard. But Collins did have to put a pressure suit on. So all three of them struggled into their spacesuits, helping each other with inaccessible zippers and generally checking the conditions of each other's equipment. This brings up a question. What would they do if, for example, Neil's zipper broke, or his helmet somehow refused to lock into his neck ring? Neil wouldn't be able to venture out into the lunar surface, nor could they allow Buzz to because Neil would perish as soon as the lunar module door was opened to the vacuum of space. Neil wouldn't be able to stay in the command module and let Buzz land by himself because the lunar module required simultaneous manipulation by two people. Collins would not be able to take Neil's place because Collins was not trained to fly the lunar module. Perhaps Collins and Armstrong could switch suits, but it was doubtful Neil could fit into Collins' suit, and Collins' suit could not accommodate the backpack. Fortunately, everything seemed to fit together, and Collins stuffed Neil and Buzz into the lunar module along with an armload of equipment. 239,000 miles away, near Houston, Texas, Gene Krantz woke up feeling refreshed. He had a quick breakfast and drove to the control center. As he approached the building, a guard named Moody recognized him and asked, We gonna land today, Mr. Krantz? Krantz replied, Today is the day. We are go. The elevators in the control center building were hydraulic like a car lift, and had a habit of getting stuck between floors. Today was not the day to get stuck in an elevator, so Krantz took the stairs to the third floor, passing controllers wishing him good luck. Other than that simple statement, everyone avoided unnecessary conversation. Usually there was a lot of chatter and kidding around among the controllers, but not today. Krantz's footsteps echoed as he walked down the high, narrow, gray hallway to the control room. As he walked, he got a vague feeling that somehow his entire life had been shaped to this place at this time. The mission operations control door was heavy, and when he entered, he realized how small the control room really was, considering the magnitude of operations that took place there. Krantz's eyes had difficulty adjusting to the heavy gray-blue gloom cast by the world map and the dimmed lights over the trench. He listened to the ambient voice level of the room. It was always an indication of what was going on. Today, it was quiet. Flight Director Lunny's team was busy closing out its shift. Many of Krantz's team controllers were already on the console and starting the handover. Jerry Bostick, chief of the flight dynamics branch, was standing behind the trench listening to his controllers. It seemed like Jerry was always there, standing behind his controllers, coaching his people. Krantz spoke briefly to each of his controllers, touching them on the back and asking, how's it going? When he reached the flight director's console, 
he hung his silver and white brocade vest on his chair. Krantz now had a ringside seat. The only better one was in the spacecraft. He took his seat, lit a cigarette, plugged in his headset, and punched up the intercom loops to listen to his team as they concluded handover. Then Krantz made his first entry in the flight log. 95 hours, 41 minutes. Mission elapsed time. White team descent. Crew in lunar module. Pressurizing preps. All looks good. Chris Kraft passed behind Krantz. He patted him on the shoulder and said, Good luck, young man. Kraft had occupied the flight director's chair from Mercury to the Apollo 1 fire. The last person to wish Krantz good luck as he left the control room was John Hodge, who, like Kraft, had closed out his era in mission control and moved into the ranks of management. A new generation of controllers, many mentored by Hodge, were now on the consoles. This is Apollo Control. We have apparently had uh, loss of signal from the spacecraft. Uh, here in Mission Control, we're in the process of changing shifts. Flight Director Gene Kranz and the white team of flight controllers coming on to replace Flight Director Glenn Lunny. The capsule communicator on this shift will be astronaut Charlie Duke. We'll reacquire the uh, spacecraft again in an, uh, a little over 45 minutes. Coming up on the uh, 11th revolution of the moon. At 95 hours, 34 minutes, this is Apollo Control. Krantz adjusted the intercom footswitch and called all controllers to give him an amber check-in light. Each controller could signal Krantz with a colored light to give his status. A green light meant, I'm go. An amber light had several connotations. Among them, console handover is in progress, or I'm currently away from the console, or I've got a problem. Call me when you have time. A red controller status light gets a flight director's immediate attention. It indicates that the controller has a serious problem or is preparing to call an abort. The panel lights on the top of Krantz's consoles instantly changed from green to amber, just like he asked. Krantz advised his controllers to go green if their handover was complete, and one by one, his status board returned to green. Andrew Patneski, the NASA photographer at Mission Control, walked to Krantz's console and bent over. Krantz rubbed his bald head for good luck. Pat Nesky and Krantz had established that ritual since the Gemini days, and it seemed to work, and he certainly wasn't going to change it today. One spacecraft revolution in lunar orbit took about two hours. During the frontside pass, Mission Control received data for about one hour and 15 minutes, followed by 45 minutes when the spacecraft was out of sight behind the moon. At spacecraft acquisition of signal on Revolution 11, the crew was ahead of the timeline by about 30 minutes. So controllers had to scramble to check displays to make sure they didn't miss any checklist items while the spacecraft was behind the moon. This is Apollo Control at 96 hours 19 minutes. We are now 
uh, less than one minute to reacquiring the spacecraft on the 11th revolution of the moon. Uh, Flight Director Gene Kranz, since uh, taking over the shift, has uh, gone around the room, uh, reviewed the situation with all of his flight controllers. Uh, we expect that when we reacquire, uh, Buzz Aldrin will be in the LEM, uh, beginning the LEM power-up and uh, check-out. Uh, he'll be joined in a short while by Neil Armstrong. We'll stand by now for acquisition of signal as the spacecraft comes around the corner. Spencer Gardner, Krantz's flight planner, brought everyone to the correct page of the flight plan, identifying checklist items the crew was currently performing. Gardner was at the top of his game today, crisp and businesslike. The crew worked with the ground on voice checks, navigation updates, computer memory dumps, and docked alignments. Revolution 11 passed quickly, and at the loss of signal, the crew was working smoothly, still about 30 minutes ahead of the timeline. This is Apollo Control at 98 hours, 16 minutes. We are now less than two minutes from reacquiring the spacecraft in its 12th revolution of the moon. At this time, Armstrong and Aldrin should be completing pressure checks on their spacesuits. Uh, coming up in this revolution, they'll be running checks on the guidance platform of their uh, LEM guidance system. They'll also be running checks on the reaction control system thrusters and their descent propulsion system, as well as the rendezvous radar. We'll also be giving them a go-no-go no go for undocking in the following revolution. The uh, checkout and activation of the LEM up to this point has been moving along very smoothly. All systems performing well, and uh, we were ahead of the flight plan at the end of the last revolution. The next revolution was equally smooth as the crew continued with lunar module landing gear deployment, autopilot checkout, and communications testing. They powered up the steerable antenna, and for the first time, Mission Control could see the complete set of telemetry from the lunar module. The controllers quickly assessed the data and happily gave their go. The trench was scrambling to keep up with the crew, provide navigational updates, synchronize clocks on board the spacecraft, and finally giving the maneuver data to the crew. Over the air path in the control room, Krantz heard the voice of Public Affairs Officer Doug Ward. He was commenting on the flight plan for the coming revolution. Ward was the youngest of the Public Affairs Officers. He was thoroughly prepared and had what it took to be a great flight controller. During press conferences, he was always ahead of the game and knew when to run interference for the flight director. He would pick up the ball and run with it if he thought his flight director was about to get hung out to dry by the media. This is Apollo Control. We have less than 10 minutes now until loss of signal on the 12th revolution. Uh, before losing contact with the spacecraft, we'll be passing along a go-no-go no go decision for undocking. That will occur early on the next revolution, just prior to reacquiring the uh, spacecraft. Flight Director Gene Kranz is going around the control center now, talking to his flight controllers, reviewing status, and uh, in preparation for making the go-no-go no go decision uh, for undocking.
The machine-like performance of the flight crew and ground controllers continued. Each participant was in perfect harmony with the other, moving to a cadence dictated by the laws of physics and the clock. At 99 hours 24 minutes, mission elapsed time, Krantz polled the controllers, saying, Okay, all flight controllers, go amber and stand by for go, no go for undocking. The poll ended quickly, with all controllers echoing, go. Charlie Duke passed the go to the crew. Mission Control had to get the go up to the spacecraft before they went behind the moon. The undocking would occur on the far side. After that, there was no getting ahead of the timeline. The command and service module and the lunar module would be flying in tandem around the moon. Back on Apollo 11, it was time for Collins to seal the tunnel between the command module and the lunar module. He closed the hatches, installed the drogue and probe, and disconnected the electrical umbilical running into the lunar module. Collins was supposed to rig the TV camera to shoot out one of his windows to show the departure of the lunar module, but he decided he was too busy preparing for undocking to set the camera up. Collins informed Houston. Houston, Columbia. Go ahead, Columbia, over. Roger, there'll be no television in the undocking. I have all available windows either full of heads or uh, cameras, and I'm busy with other things. We concur, over. This is Apollo Control. We've had loss of signal now. Uh, we'll reacquire the spacecraft again uh, on the 13th revolution in about 45 minutes. At the end of this uh, pass, we passed along the go for undocking. Uh, that maneuver will occur uh, just before we reacquire the spacecraft on the 13th revolution and will be followed in about 30, 30 minutes, uh, about 30 minutes later by a small separation maneuver performed by Mike Collins in the command module. Uh, the checkout of the LEM has been going extremely well uh, up to now ahead of schedule and both vehicles look very good. At 99 hours 31 minutes this is Apollo Control Houston. As Apollo 11 passed behind the moon Collins was on the radio with the lunar module constantly running through an elaborate series of joint checks with the Eagle. In one of them, Collins used his control system to hold both vehicles steady while they calibrated some of their guidance equipment. Collins checked his progress with Buzz, saying, I've had 5 minutes and 15 seconds since we started. Attitude is holding very well. Buzz replied, Roger, Mike, just hold it a little bit longer. Collins replied, no sweat. I can hold it all day. Take your sweet time. How's the czar over there? He's so quiet. Neil chimed in, just hanging on and punching. Punching those computer buttons, Collins thought. Collins finally bid them goodbye, saying, You cats take it easy on the lunar surface. And Buzz replied, Okay, Mike. Collins pushed the button to release the lunar module and called out, Okay, there you go, beautiful. Pushed by the spring action of the docking mechanism and by some pressurized air that did not get vented from the tunnel, the two crafts drifted apart. 
with his nose against the window of window number two and the movie camera turning away over in window four, Collins watched Neil and Buzz go. This is Apollo Control at 100 hours, 14 minutes. We're now less than two minutes from reacquiring the spacecraft on the 13th revolution. When next we hear from them, uh, the lunar module should be undocked from the command and service module. Uh, we're presently about 25 minutes away from the uh, separation burn, which will be performed by Mike Collins in the command module uh, to give the LEM and the CSM a separation distance at the descent orbit insertion maneuver of about two miles. Uh, we have some times on uh, the upcoming events. The separation maneuver is scheduled to occur at a ground elapsed time of 100 hours, 39 minutes, 50 seconds. The descent orbit insertion maneuver, which will be performed on the back side of the moon, uh, set for 101 hours, 36 minutes, 14 seconds. And the beginning of the powered descent at 102 hours, 33 minutes, 4 seconds. We're now 55 seconds from reacquiring Apollo 11 on the 13th revolution. Uh, during this uh, revolution, uh, we will be doing the uh, separation maneuver. We'll also be giving the uh, crew on the, lunar, on the lunar module a go no-go for the descent orbit insertion maneuver. We'll stand by now to reacquire the spacecraft. Eagle Houston, we, Houston, we see you on the stairwell, over. Roger, Eagle's undocked. Roger, how does it look? The Eagle has wings. Roger. Looking good. Roger, Neil. We got a, if you'll give us poo and data, we got the loads for you. In case you didn't copy that, that was Neil Armstrong saying, The Eagle has wings. With undocking complete, the next item on the flight plan was the separation maneuver. This maneuver involved a small thrust from the command module to put some distance between it and the lunar module. Collins asked Neil and Buzz to begin a slow pirouette in place. This allowed Collins to get a good look at the lunar module and verify its legs were extended. As the two spacecraft flew in formation, Capcom Charlie Duke rattled off a long string of maneuver data for the landing and the abort and rescue options. Aldrin read back the data, and the mission control team confirmed it. Back in mission control, this was the busiest time of Gene Krantz's shift. Now he had to keep logs on two spacecraft, each with its own plan, procedures, and timeline. The common link between the spacecraft was Spencer Gardner's flight plan. Krantz kept the separate groups in harmony as the intensity in the room increased. Then he polled the controllers for the separation maneuver, go, no go. Having met all the criteria, and with both spacecraft looking good, Krantz took a deep breath and gave the go for separation burn. Capcom passed the word up to Columbia. And, uh, Houston, you're looking good for separation. You're a go for separation, Columbia. Over. Mike, what's going to be your pitch angle at set? Uh, zero, zero, seven degrees. Okay. After Collins made sure all four landing gear were down and locked, he reported that fact to Neil, saying, 
I think you've got a fine-looking machine there, Eagle, despite the fact that you're upside down. Neil replied, Somebody's upside down. I think you got a fine-looking flying machine there, Eagle, despite the fact you're upside down. Somebody's upside down. As the time for the separation burn passed quickly, Collins alerted Neil. Okay, you go. One minute to take. You got to take care. See you later. Resting. This is Apollo Control. That uh, separation maneuver was performed as scheduled, um, giving the uh, command module a, a delta V of about 2.5 feet per second. Uh, which should give a separation to the two vehicles of about uh, 1,100 feet at uh, the beginning of the descent orbit insertion maneuver. After separation, the flight control team split into two elements, each working with its own communication links and data stream to the two spacecraft. To land on the moon, the lunar module needed to make two separate burns. The first one was called Descent Orbit Insertion, DOI for short. This burn took place behind the moon and would serve to drop the Eagle's paraloon to 50,000 feet at a point 16 degrees east of the landing site. This is Apollo Control. We're coming up on 15 minutes now until loss of signal with the lunar module. Flight Director Gene Kranz has uh, just advised his flight controllers to review all of their data, take a good close look at the uh, spacecraft. Uh, in preparation for a go-no-go decision on the descent orbit insertion. At 101 hours, 17 minutes, mission elapsed time, Mission Control gave the go for descent orbit insertion. Eagle Houston, you're a go for DOI, over. Roger, go for DOI. Do you have LOS and AOS time? Roger for you, LOS 10128. AOS 10216, over. Columbia, Houston, your systems are looking good. Going over the hill, about seven minutes to LOS. And Eagle on my mark, we'll have 12 minutes to ignition, over. This is Apollo Control. We've had loss of signal now. Uh, the spacecraft Eagle has been given a go for descent orbit insertion. Uh, that maneuver to occur in 7 minutes 40 seconds uh, out of contact, out of radio contact. The DOI maneuver uh, is scheduled to come at 101 hours, 36 minutes, uh, 14 seconds. That uh, will be a 76.4 foot per second burn. The burn duration, 29.8 seconds. And the resulting orbit for the LEM will be 57.2 by 8.5 nautical miles. Uh, when next we acquire the lunar module, it should be at an altitude of about 18 nautical miles on its way down to the low point of about 50,000 feet from where the powered descent to the lunar surface will begin. As the spacecraft went around the corner, all systems on both vehicles looked very good. Uh, everything is go here in mission control and aboard the spacecraft for the descent orbit insertion uh, to occur in 6 minutes, 38 seconds. This is Apollo Control Houston at 101 hours, 29 minutes. In mission control, Gene Krantz looked up from his console and noticed that each of his controllers had reduced the crowding around their consoles. Charlie Duke and Deke Slayton 
had cleaned house at the Capcom console. Astronauts Pete Conrad, Fred Hayes, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders had relocated to other parts of the room. Krantz wondered when he would start to see signs of pressure in his team. So far, the reports were crisp, their voices almost the same as they were in training. The controllers were in a groove. Krantz marveled at how well they were holding up, for no matter how hard they tried to appear relaxed and cool, Krantz knew the pressure had to be building in them. As the clocks continued their relentless progress, Krantz could finally feel the tension mixed with excitement in the room. The air started to crackle as they anticipated coming events. Krantz noticed that the paper in his logbook was damp from his sweaty palms, and the paper was curling up in a tight roll as he engraved each word with his ballpoint pen. At the time, Krantz was not aware of it, but he was close to maximum stress, even though mentally he was as cool as a cucumber. When both spacecraft went behind the moon and telemetry and voice were lost, Krantz advised his controllers to take five. The rush for the restrooms led by the people in the trench was an indication of the pressure the controllers were feeling. Krantz followed the mass exodus and listened to their voices. There was no loud talk or joking. Their faces revealed a level of concentration and preoccupation that Krantz had never seen before. He did not look at his own face in the mirror for fear that he might let his own feelings show. As he re-entered the control room, Krantz was inspired by the controller's medal, for it takes courage to do their work. They were mostly in their mid-twenties, and Krantz was thirty-five. As he looked around, it all became real for him. In the next forty minutes, this team will try to take two Americans to the surface of the moon. It will all be on the line. They will land, crash, or abort. In forty minutes, they will know which. Bill Tyndall, the architect for all the techniques used to land on the moon, sat down in the chair next to Krantz. Krantz motioned him to come closer to his console, where he could see the displays. In many ways, this was Tyndall's day, too, and one of the happiest of his life, and perhaps all their lives. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 219 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11 Lunar Landing Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I really did. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that as well as download every episode of the podcast, even the ones that have fallen off the RSS feed. You can do all of that on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. 
Today, I want to salute the Soyuz level donors. There are 15 so far this year. Soyuz donors give $30 a year or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Soyuz donors. Had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to give credit to a few of the sources I used during this series, and that includes Mike Collins in his book, Carrying the Fire, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight, Andrew Chaikin, A Man on the Moon, Gene Krantz, Failure is Not an Option, and, of course, the Apollo 11 Flight Journal. Now, I want to explain the maneuvers I just covered in case you missed it. The first was undocking the lunar module and the command module. That maneuver was kind of self-explanatory. The next maneuver is not. It's called the separation maneuver. And in this maneuver, Columbia, the command module, made a small burn to put some distance between it and the eagle. Next, the eagle was given permission to execute the descent orbit insertion burn. This burn would put Eagle in an elliptical orbit with a very low pass over the moon. They gave permission. We didn't get to the burn yet because they're on the other side of the moon, the far side, and that's where we'll pick it up from next week. Also next week, Eagle will make its second burn called Powered Descent. This will be their final burn to reach the surface. Also, in case you didn't know, LOS It means loss of signal. That happens when they travel behind the moon. And AOS is called acquisition of signal. Okay, in Gene Krantz's book, he had a really nice story about the flower lady. I didn't put it in the episode because I didn't want to slow the pace down any, but I'd like to read it for you now. A bouquet of roses glows red against the gray wall of the mission control room. The bouquet always arrives as we near launch day for the Apollo missions. The accompanying card simply states, From an admirer. Initially, they came from Dallas, subsequently from various Canadian cities, and then the eastern United States. The sender became known among the controllers simply as the Flower Lady. For us, they were a tangible link with someone who represented the hopes and good wishes of the millions who cheered us on as we pushed deeper into space. We would not know the name of this anonymous supporter until the end of the Apollo mission, when we received for the first time a card signed with only the sender's name, Cindy. It became almost a talisman. The launch flight director always wanted to know that the flowers had arrived, and they always had, every time. We placed the flowers in a vase on a small table to the right and beneath the operator room's 10 by 10 foot TV screen. This was in the area we were normally congregated to celebrate a successful mission. We knew that the TV cameras would pick up the roses sitting there in the background thus showing our appreciation to the unknown well-wisher. And that was an excerpt from Krantz's book, page 278. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Stuart D. 
from Florida donated at the Orion level and earned his rocket emoji. David E. donated at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. James B. from Australia donated at the Soyuz level and earned his rocket emoji. Will M. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Stephen G. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Alan M. sent in a second donation pledging on Patreon. Thank you very much, donors. I sincerely appreciate it. That brings our total Patreons to 131. That is 19 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donor numbers have reached 224 with a goal of 300. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level, or sign up with Patreon for a $1 per month or more, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on one of the links on the top right side of the page, and begin your support of the Space Rocket History podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have some of these Orion desk model kits left. I think I have three, two or three left. The model is of an Orion spacecraft service module and solar arrays. It is made out of cardstock. To assemble, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select a winner. I gave every donor a number between 1 and 224. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 222. Donor number 222 is Luke Johnson. Luke, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Still have about two more of these left, so we'll have another drawing next week for the 2017 donor group. I was pleased to see the podcast received four new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Steve Lee Bassbone, CJ Hayden 1, and Epic Act 1 for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. There was one anonymous five-star rating, and I'd like to thank whoever did that as well. Want to encourage everyone to share the podcast? Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on any social media. And thanks to those who've already done so, like my retweeters for July. With a stainless steel plate and nine screws in her arm, here is Mrs. SRH with the retweeters. Hello, everyone. This is Mrs. SRH. Thanks so much for your get well wishes. And here are our retweeters for July. 1202 Alarm, Ashley James Lee, Aviatrix 79, Beacon 63, Bert at Home, Bonner to You, Buddy P. Murphy, Chris Towers, Craig Leibert, David B. Nugent, DJ Sticky Boots, DCK7, Futurama King, NDTM42, Hi Biff, Jacob Hahn, Kadavi 1202, Keith Drinkwine, KHS Astronomy, M. Lunyon, Man from Vanuatu, Matt Jenkins, 1979, Michael Hoadley, My Turn Racing, 
Pee Wee 888, Pompeiator, Rapid Mustang, Pyro for Jesus, Percival, Proud Boys of Virginia, Serenity Jaded, Shine Our Squirrel, Stephen Lebowski, Skibby, Wayne Neville 75, and Wet Hog. Thanks for retweeting Space Rocket History. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic remarks if you want to. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, I plan to cover the moon landing. In podcast news, last week I gave you the statistics for the top 10 countries for downloads for July, and now I would like to give you 11 through 20. These are 11 through 20 for downloads in July. Number 11, Norway moves up. Number 12, Ireland moves up. Number 13, Austria moves up. Number 14, Denmark. Number 15, Spain. Number 16, Cyprus. Number 17, Portugal. Number 18, Finland. Number 19, Brazil. And number 20, Italy. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners in countries 11 through 20. Thanks for listening. In personal news... We got to see Mrs. SRH's post-op x-ray on Monday. And, you know, I thought she was only getting two screws put in. But we counted them on the x-ray, and there were nine screws that they put in. That is nine screws. The stainless steel plate went on the inside part of her arm, right where it connects to the wrist. And they... uh, While we were at the visit, they took off the splint and her incision was about three inches long. So she is on the mend now and she's only wearing a brace and a bandage over her incision. She's still dealing with some pain, but she's off of the heavy medication. She's just taking Tylenol now, so she's doing really well. And you heard her do the retweets, so it's nice to have her feeling better now. And it's also nice for her to get that splint off because she can move around a whole lot better. She's scheduled also for the physical therapy as well. So she'll have to go through that too, but it probably won't be that bad. So that's our medical status update. (laughs) I'm doing fine, thank you. (laughs) All I've had to do is take care of her and, and pick up the extra chores that she normally does. She does a lot of work around here, let me tell you. (laughs) Okay, that's about all I have for this week. Think I will leave before I say anything wrong. <laughs> uh, this is, I will try to do my best to get episode 220 up by next Thursday. So long for now. <laughs>